Welcome to Sales Velocity TV, where we pull back the curtain on how the top businesses in the world sell more with less resistance. Bringing over 50 plus years of combined sales experience and over 100 million in revenue generated, please welcome the hosts of Sales Velocity TV and two incredibly entertaining gentlemen, Andrew Cass and Aaron Parkinson. What is happening, everybody? Aaron, how are you, my friend? We're talking about the big Q today. The big Q. The big Q is the big Q. The big Q is, is it sales? Is it marketing? Is it marketing? Is it sales? Which one's more important? We're going to put it under the gun and under the microscope today and dissect it because it's, um, I think people grapple with this a little bit. What do you think? I think it's because they don't actually understand the difference, the difference between the two. Sales and marketing are almost like... Uh, like brothers. Batman and Robin? Like, yeah, they're like Batman and Robin or like brothers that fight on the back lawn on a regular basis <laughs> trying to decide who's tougher. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, and, and I think that that's, that's a good one. That's the challenge that most people have is they don't realize that that technically sales falls under marketing in most businesses. So marketing is the umbrella and sales falls underneath it. Yeah. And then I think what most people think is that sales is like, is, is, is maybe a sales team or a, you know, a sales process and marketing is just how you get people there, but they actually have a, a blend in the middle together. And, and the definition really is, you know, sales and marketing are crucial, crucial pillars of every business. They're closely linked and they act as a catalyst for generating revenue profit. Yep. yep. And, and marketing is about building awareness that a brand and organization exists and sales turn that viewership into profits by converting the potential customer into actual customers. That's the actual definition to, to sales and marketing. Now, I'm a little bit biased because I've spent my whole world, my whole life in the marketing world. So as far as I'm concerned, and this is the brother on the lawn saying I'm tougher, right? If you don't have anybody to talk to, you got nobody to sell, right? So I'm always leaning into the marketing side and then the sales guys go, well, yeah, but if nobody actually has a way to close the deal, what does it matter how many people are interested in the product? It's a tug of war. It's a tug it's of war. It's a tug of war. And in my, in my book, Sales Velocity, the statement I made is a great sales process is always preceded by a great marketing process. Mm -hmm. Very rarely will you see this amazing sales team with just disastrous marketing happening or sporadically happening. Because then what happens is, like you said a second ago, your, your sales team is kind of on, off, on, off, on, off because they don't have deal flow, lead flow. So marketing creates deal flow. So... My opinion would be the marketing is the most important because I can always create sales processes. I can always replace people with better people. But if the lead flow and the deal flow doesn't come in, guess what? The greatest salesperson in the world doesn't get to sell anything. I, I often say also that you could have a cure for cancer, but if nobody knows about it, nobody's getting cured. So I could have, I could have, you know, what, what's the movie, the big sales movies? Um, what, what's the Glenn, Glenn Gary, the, Glenn Ross? Remember, remember that one? This is, you know, for some of you newer dogs in sales and me, me and Aaron go back, God, collectively probably 50 plus years. But if you go back and watch 
all the old sales movies like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which was with Alec Baldwin. It was like real estate selling, cold calling by phone. It was, it's really hilarious. And by the way, old school, you could go back to Boiler Room, which you could go back to the Wolf of Wall Street, right? These are reflections of what selling looked like way, way, way back in like 70s, 80s, little bit of the 90s, pre-internet, when it was really just phone and direct mail. If you really want to learn some, you know, tactics, if you will, that really some work today, some don't. Go back and watch some of the older movies. They're actually hilarious. But a lot of that doesn't, a lot of that never really worked. A lot of it was sensationalized and Hollywoodized and whatnot. And I was in that space for a long time. Um, The system I trained under as a stockbroker in New York was the Jordan Belfort system. By the way, the legal side of it, not the illegal side of it. I was fortunate (laughs) that I got into the business long after all those guys got put away for stock fraud and all they did. So they weren't, it wasn't, they didn't get put away for the way they were selling. They got put away for what they were selling, right? Back in the day, that was a yeah, big difference. And I, like the, and I would like make the sales approach and the tactics and the techniques were really good scripting and positioning and excitement and enthusiasm. Like all those elements existed, which I trained under, and the straight line pitch and being able to keep yourself organized and not veer off. A distraction for salespeople is a big thing. But when you're pitching stocks for companies that don't exist and you're taking money that's going into a black hole, obviously you're going to have a problem. Yeah, and I think that if you go back and you look at your career on Wall Street or you look at um, the mortgage industry, which you were in for a while, and you look at some of these old school movies, the takeaway from that is that was basically 100% sales focused Yes, because their marketing was poor. Their marketing was pick up the phone and make 100 calls a day Mm -hmm. and sell some stuff. And Aaron, we we couldn't go home. I was 20 at the time, 21 in, in you know on Long Island where I worked. I worked for a firm outside of Wall Street, not on Wall Street, but it was a Wall Street based firm. Is um, you had to you had to prove that you made 250 dials per day outbound. It was all you could see it on the system, right? It was all tracked. You couldn't go home until you made 250 outbound dials a day to business owners to basically see if they had an interest in the upcoming stock pick or the upcoming recommendation or the upcoming financial plan, right? That was the, that was the business. The business was cold calling. Right. And the marketing strategy was cold calling. <laughs> that, so, that was it. That was the marketing. So, and if you were lucky, Aaron, if you were lucky, the company might've sent out like a direct mail brochure ahead of time, which was like, maybe. this was like seeing fire. We were like, you mean you're going to send a brochure in the mail about the firm so that when I call them next week, I can actually reference, did you get my brochure in the mail? That actually helped things quite a bit. I of course love, it did. I love direct mail preceding a phone call or even today email preceding a phone call. By the way, big lesson here. If you can engineer direct mail or email to go out and, and start to position you or your service prior to a call being made, that phone call suddenly goes from a cold call to a slightly warm call. And that changes the game entirely because if you can call someone and say, hey, I wanted to you know, speak to Aaron quickly here. We sent him a priority mail package about a week ago and I wanted to make sure he got it, see if he didn't have any questions, right? It's like, oh, he sent me something. This isn't a cold call versus, hey, can I speak to the owner because I want to, <laughs> right? It's a, it's a big, big difference in the setup. And we had a little bit of that towards the end. Yeah, I actually was watching something the other day where this guy was trying to get to high powered executives and what he was doing is he was sending a, 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 a necess- and one of those necessary sign upon receipt type FedEx Ooh, envelopes. signature required, baby. Signature required. Oh. He was sending them to executives like 
And inside the envelope was a brochure and a burner phone. And as soon as he got the notification that it had been signed for, he was calling the burner phone and he was like, this is how, how much I want to get your attention. And the guy was like, damn, like all of that stuff works because it's shock and awe. There's a great book out in addition to my book, by the way, sales velocity, there's a great book out called the ultimate sales machine written by Chet Holmes, who before he died of cancer, partnered with Tony Robbins, and they built a massive sales organization, sales training organization. And they had the concept of the Dream 100. And the concept of the Dream 100 was, okay, you're in, I don't know, technology consulting, right? You're a sales professional. And there's 100 ideal clients that you want, let's say, in your area, in the United States, whatever. And you're going to take those hundreds, source those hundred. They're busy. In, in a perfect world, you could do business with all of those hundred, right? Or even 10 of them, but they're in your bucket. You would create a multi-step program to reach out to them. FedEx, email, phone call, FedEx again, gift. Guys have sent trash baskets full of... Le- I know a guy who sent a full-size trash can with a letter in it because there's no possible way that when the trash can got delivered to the front that the lady was going to leave it on her desk. She had to bring it to the owner, right? I've seen these. These are true examples, by the way. These are shock and awe pre-sale, by the way, pre-sale point of the day, pre-sale approaches to get attention in a world where it's tough to get even a second of attention. Right, So these are the things that in the Dream 100, they talked about making that list and crafting like a seven to 10 point touch before you know you'll even maybe even get that person on the phone, which required now today it's even better because you have email, regular mail, phone. You know, you can take that, the, the, what I call the trifecta approach really should be using all three. Yeah. Pr- and, pretty and interesting. Going, the ultimate sales the point machine, by the way. Is, is you have to, to, to operate at the highest efficiency and maybe also most importantly, don't burn your sales team out because I have to imagine Andrew in that old school sales, you know, call floor world guys got burnt out super, super quick, big turnover, huge turnover. Right. And, and in order to not burn out your sales team, if you have a sales team, cause we're not just talking about sales teams today with regards to sales organizations, but In order to not burn them out, the idea is to chip away. It's first to create awareness that your business, your product, your service exists. And then chip away at the resistance of the buyer in an eloquent manner so that when they actually get to your sales process, they are aware that you exist. They are aware of what you do, the problem that you solve. They potentially been nurtured a little bit in sold almost pre-sold case studies, testimonials, so on and so forth. And you'll see the conversion rate of your sales team or your sales process go up exponentially with every layer that you provide with these things before they get to the point of transaction. So, you know, if we look at Let's just look at an example. Let's look at Pipeline Pro, right? Because the Pipeline Pro sponsors this show. We hit people with an explainer video um, in social media. We target them with them. It's a, it's a five-minute explainer video talking about what we do. I actually reviewed this this morning, so it's kind of funny timing. I was reviewing it with the marketing team. Give me the stats, man. Yeah, so we, we, get, we get people to watch this five-minute video for about 10 cents each. 
So people watch a video, they, they, they go, okay, this is what this company does. I'm aware I'm exist. We then take all of those video viewers and we retarget them into what we call a warm bucket. And the warm bucket is now we want them to get to know us better, our system better, our process better. So we show them things like these podcast clips. We show them uh, case studies and, and video testimonials from our clients. We show them demos of how the software works. So, so first off, they didn't know we exist. Now they know we exist. Then they know a little bit more about you, me, the software, people who've used it, so on and so forth. That costs us about another 20 cents to get them to watch that video. Sales start to happen mm -hmm. in that bucket, but they're not cheap sales because there's still, you know, awareness and, and, and friction that has to be overcome. And then we retarget all those people again and we hit them with the direct response ads, you know, feature, benefit, problem, solution, so on and so forth. And then if they go to the site and they don't buy, we hit them again with retargeting and we overcome their big objections and we highlight the big benefits. And as a whole, and I was actually talking to the campaign manager about this morning, he said, you know, I, I really think we should think about killing this warm bucket section because we're paying, you know, roughly four times more what you want for a cost per acquisition from this warm bucket. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The whole thing working together, awareness, engagement, education, reducing friction is what allows the, the cost per acquisition to stay so low. Because if you just focus on pain, solution, solution, outcome, you're only going to sell maybe 5% of your total buyers that would mm -hmm. ever buy. Because those are the people who just get what you're saying today they just get it when they see it. But the other 95% of your buyers, they need to be educated. They need to be nurtured. They need to be shown things. They need to be hit maybe five times in one bucket, you know, in one group of people, 10, 10 times in another group of people, 25 group times in another group of people. So if you, if you just zone in on that one bucket, that's the equivalent in my mind of just cold calling somebody and saying, hey, do you want to buy this stock? Yeah, it's right? a good point. Just, it's it's synergistically everything together. It's everything together. So I understood the logic because he's looking at the math saying, well, we're spending more here. And I said, no, no, no. Yes, we're spending more here, but those people are flowing through the education process. So then when they get down here, the cost per acquisition stays low where we want it to be. And then when he got that, he was like, got it. That That makes sense, right? It's about building that marketing strategy that educates, that bonds, mm -hmm. that overcomes objections, all of these things. So when they finally get to the, the hardcore message of, hey, you should buy this. This is what it's going to do for you. Yep. They're like, oh, I know this company. I, I know what they do. I've seen people using it and it works. I've done that. I mean, we just did a whole bunch of UGC content, Andrew, which we're about to roll out next user, week. User-generated content videos, by the way. People using the software in action type videos where right. not me or someone else. It's an actor and somebody who's used the video, used the, 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 the service, by the way. Exactly. And we put this in our retargeting and in our warm bucket advertising because it's one thing for you to say, hey, my product's awesome. Here's how it works. It's a completely other different thing showing somebody else who's actually a customer using your product, showing how it works. We are wired to believe somebody else. Third party. Third party saying great things about our stuff. 
way more having way more credit than us saying anything about our product ourselves. Right. Which is why you have this as part of your marketing strategy to bring people closer to the sale. And in our particular case, the first sale that happens is was when somebody comes a customer of pipeline. There's no sales team there, right? There's a there's a there's problem solution offer they buy online. But then that sales process now kicks into gear at different levels. They get offered upsells, they get offered downsells. They get put into a nurture series. They get they get put on a fast start session with one of our advisors. The advisors reviews their business to see where there may be holes where we could offer suggestions or services to improve it. That 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 sales process is not one thing. It's very long and very robust to make sure that we're serving the clients at the highest level. It's funny, as you were saying that last part, I received yesterday in the mail um, my T-shirt from Russell Brunson and Dan Kennedy, by the way. Ah, very nice. Yeah, so their newest venture, you know that Russell Brunson bought Dan Kennedy's company, so ClickFunnels bought Magnetic Marketing. This was you know, really one of the biggest acquisitions in direct response marketing, I think maybe ever, right? So they have a great newsletter program, you know, one newsletter a month from Russell, one newsletter a month from Dan. Dan on big picture strategy, Russell more on like funnels and the tactics of online marketing, like what we're talking about here today. So it's really a, an awesome one-two punch. But when I joined their higher level diamond membership, and I'll put the, the link for information, everybody in the show notes below, um, we got a t-shirt that said magnetic marketing on it. And on the back, it said in quotes, he who can spend the most to acquire a customer wins. Correct. And that's a famous Dan Kennedy quote, right? It's He's always like, don't think about spending the least. You think about spending the most because then nobody else can and you basically get all the customers, right? So, but the point is you might be thinking like, well, how does that make sense? Well, it makes sense because if you can afford to spend more on a customer, then you obviously know how to make more on the customer because you're willing to spend, I don't know, let's call it $100 for a customer when, when your competitors are like freaking out about $20 acquisition. But maybe you have a customer value of 3,000 and you're easily able to spend Heck, you could spend $500 on a customer if you have a $3,000 customer value. But most people don't think that far ahead into the sales process or into the customer value, which we've done full episodes on. So they're only stuck on like what your campaign manager was or our yep. campaign manager. He was stuck on front end price, not back end profit. Yeah. And he was looking at one element of the campaign on its own versus looking at how the whole thing works together synergistically. Yeah. And I think that you made a really good point there because- a, a, a lot of people think that the marketing stops once the first sale is made. Oh, God, no. The marketing continues to the customer, but in order for the marketing to continue to the customer, <clears throat> you have to have taken the time to step back and say, okay, when the customer buys this from me, what is the outcome that that's going to give them? Where is that now going to put them in their business? And now what are they going to be looking to accomplish now that they've solved the initial problem? And how can I serve them at the highest level for the next step in their journey? And I always consult my clients on what's next. And they, it really irritates them. They, they say, we always say, what's next? What's next? We just did the thing. We just put this new thing in. Great. What's next? Because there's a journey that all customers go on, regardless of what industry they're in. And whatever product or service you give them has now solved a problem, but now they, they're moving to a new level in their, in their journey 
that there's a new problem or a new goal or a new outcome that they want to achieve. And you can either be the business that eloquently presents that to them through internal marketing and internal sales, or they will leave your ecosystem and they will go find somebody else who can now solve this problem for them because you're, you're not making it available. And if you, if you actually step back and ask yourself, what's next in this customer's journey, you can create this, this value ladder is the term you like to use, Andrew, where it's really a never ending marketing and sales process internally. And what that allows you to do is dramatically increase the lifetime value of your customer. Oh, and by the way, the trust with your customer, because the customer says, man, this this business really knows me. They know my, you know, what's next for me, what my problem is, what my, what I need for a solution. They've always got the answer and they're going to come back to you time and time again. Cause you're always, you're always showing them that you're thinking about their journey by presenting these things. And that's, and that's where it, it, I talk about moving from transactional to tribal, right? Transactional is just, you have a problem, here's the solution, buy my stuff. When you actually think about their journey and how to serve them at the highest level, then it becomes tribal and you create fans, you create raving fans that are gonna share your product or service with everybody they know. And going back to the original point about spending everybody, if you've got a lifetime value of $500, well, by the time you figure out your costs, your overhead, your cogs, your, your, your media, your this, your that, and let's say you've got a 15% profit margin. It's gonna be tough. It's gonna be thin because you, you, have the, you have the potential to run through the audience that's willing to buy your product or service. Now, all of a sudden, if you create a value ladder and you think about what's next in the client's journey and maybe the next product you, are, you offer them is, is another $500 product or a thousand or a $5,000 product. And then at the end of, of that journey, you think about what's next for them and you offer them another $1,000 or another 5,000 or 25 or $100,000 product, right? You can end up having a <clears throat> lifetime value now of 3,000, 5,000. Which, which loops back to guess what? Now I can spend way more to acquire the customer. Exactly. Because I've engineered a backend that's not a $500 value, but maybe it's a $5,000 value. Heck, right. I've seen businesses, Aaron, go out and have, be perfectly fine spending $1,000 to acquire a customer because they know statistically that their average customer value in some cases is six figures or close to it or deep five figures. Absolutely. And they have no problem running a whole bunch of Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and TikTok and Google ads and whatever else you want to direct mail TV, they do it all right. And they're they're in certain medias. It's super expensive and other medias. Maybe they found a way to do it cheap, but that is the key to the, that's well, the key to the marketing right there is finding that cost per acquisition. And I know that you and I, when we speak to the media team every week, the first thing we ask on that call is where do we stand with cost per acquisition of the new customer? What is that number? We're always, that's the first benchmark we're looking at, right? Yep. And then the second thing I look at is what is our current LTV lifetime value in our ecosystem to make sure that that's a justifiable cost per acquisition and can we increase the lifetime value somehow? And, and when you're, what you're talking about is super important because if you're in a, in a competitive marketplace and your competitor can't justify spending more than $50 to acquire a customer, but you can justify spending $500. But the funny thing you said about the justifying thing is if you ask most business owners what they're basing the justification on, they just go, 
I just don't want to spend more than $50. And you say, why? And they go, I just don't want to spend more than $50. And you yeah, say, in well, many like, cases, like, where do you get the $50 number from? And they go, I don't know. I just don't want to spend more than $50. And it's like, what you got to have stats and data. Like where, where, where is the, where's the feedback loop here? You can't just yeah. make the, and, and sometimes we do it unconsciously, by the way, it's really important to catch yourself is you can't just unconsciously make these decisions without data. That's the whole key. To, that's the whole key to why we start the conversation with what is our cost per acquisition? What if we see it slip up 30% and we weren't keeping an eye on it? All of a sudden you go, why aren't, now you go, why aren't we making as much money? Right. right. So this, this slips into a lot of different areas. So the front end cost per acquisition, which is the marketing, is everything. Because if you can throttle that and play with that and test it in different medias, you are winning the game. I mean, you're I, always winning. Think, I always think it's funny. Like you just made a point there where I'll talk to a lot of my clients and and they'll, I'll say, what is your current cost per acquisition? Most of them know what that is. That, that's a that's a big relief. Most of them know. And then I'll ask them, what's your lifetime value? And I don't know. That's so, a tougher number to figure out. I get that that one doesn't, isn't known as much, but well, it needs but to be known. It's not, it's not tough to figure out. You just look at the amount of customers that you've brought in. You look at the total amount of gross revenue that they've spent and you divide and the yeah, gross yeah. revenue by the amount of the customers. Yeah, tougher and then not you know, tough. Tougher it's not, not tough. tough. It's easy. Yeah. It's just that people don't do it. Right. right. And so then you look at their cost per acquisition goals and you say, why did you choose this goal then? You know, in some cases, it's their so, lifetime value is so bad. I'm going, why Why would you think it's okay to to make this cost per acquisition your goal? Sometimes, listen, a lot of times, you as a business owner, listening, entrepreneur, sales professional, not as much because you're probably working for someone else. But sometimes you got to recognize that you're in a business that has very bad economics. Very. You don't have to stay in the business because you like it. This is always like the restaurant example I get. Everybody had, and, I, and I made this mistake so I can talk to it. I owned a restaurant in New York City with two partners back in, oh God, I don't even remember the year. I think it was pre-2000-ish, two, two, right? We, we, um, we had a really cool little restaurant in Union Square in New York City. And it was like a cool factor. It was like we all invested money. We had it. We got to go bring family, friends, hang out. If we were in New York City late at night and it was midnight and we were done with where we were at, we could go hang out at the restaurant. Sounds and eat our amazing. Food. It's all like the cool factor. But like... That's not the reason to own a business is because it's cool and fun. That's why restaurants fail so much is because it's like the coolest business to own. But it, in a lot of cases, it is the, the profit margins are so tight that if you're not like stealth with that business model, you're pretty much done. I would say that that business model may have the highest turnover of any. I mean, we all lost six figures fast. <laughs> Put yeah, it that I, way. Think that, I think that the average restaurant only has a profit margin of somewhere between five to seven percent. But not only that, it's, it's the life cycle. Right. And yep. it's like, it's like restaurant, I jokingly say restaurants have like the life cycle of NFL players, like two, three years and they're done if they don't have razor sharp numbers and they don't have the knowledge that we're talking about. So it can chew you up and spit you out fast. Restaurants, you know, one example, but you, you sometimes need to realize that either the economics stink right now and I need to change that by having a better back end and more, like you said, more products and services where I can make this thing more valuable or you better get the hell out because there's something to be said for cutting your losses too. And very few cut losses today because they're so emotionally attached. Absolutely. You, you have to look at the economic. First off, you have to know your numbers. Secondly, you have to understand the economics of your business model. What does it cost mm -hmm. to acquire a customer? 
What are my conversion rates going to be? What are my upsells? What are my repeat buyers? Mm -hmm. You know, what are all these things? What, you know, what is the industry average? So even if it's new, what are the averages that I should shoot for at least to give yourself a benchmark to begin and then say, am I reaching these things? If not, I need to focus in on reaching these because it's a necessity in this marketplace. And, and I have a, a lot of newbies, which we don't, we don't work with a lot of newbies anymore, but they'll come to me and they'll say, uh, this is my business model. This is my product. This is what I want to charge. And I'd like to go do marketing on XYZ channel, YouTube or this or that. And I'll tell them straight up, your business doesn't work. It, it, it's, it happens a lot. I mean, we see it all the time. It happens a lot. And it's like shell shocking news for many. It really yeah. Yeah, they go, well, I want to sell this product. It's the greatest product in the world. It's going to help all these people. It's going to solve all these problems. I'm so passionate about it. And I'll say, well, what's the cost of the product? What does it cost to manufacture or what does it cost to, um, you know, fulfill or, you know, and, and, and what's the overhead of the business and, and what do we, what do we think the cost for acquisition is going to be on this channel? And then I'll show them the math and I'll say, it's not going to work. So you got two choices, scrap the idea or change the business model mm -hmm. to make the math work Yep. before you go sink like you did a hundred thousand dollars into something that you think is a great idea, but it's not a great idea. The math says it's a terrible idea. In my defense, I was like 24. Of course. And at so, that age with the amount of money you had, I would have done exactly the yeah, same yeah, thing. And I, I would have sat in there with all my buddies and drank wine and we ate had steaks. money to lose back then. We were very successful you know, we were benefiting from the NASDAQ going up a thousand points every week, <laughs> right? right? So we were in the investment banking business when the NASDAQ went from like 2000 to 5,000. We just, just nailed that two year window and we made a lot of money. Obviously we made a lot of money for our clients too, but, um, sometimes more money creates more stupidity. We know this, sure. right? I, uh, I still to this day have to catch myself at 49 that <laughs> when I have excess money sitting around, I am like itching to go buy something or do something cool. And, Back for me, like, you know how you all have, you have your vices growing yep. up? Did you have like something like, like that when you're, when you were making a lot of money, where was it being spent? For me, it was a boat, right? You know, cause you've been on my boats for, I have, haven't had a boat since 2000. When did I sell my boat? 2000. Um, my son was born 2010, maybe 2013 ish, right? Once you have kids, it's tough to have a boat when they're babies, right? So, but I had a boat for about 16, 17 years, New York, Long Island. I had two, then I had two more in Miami where I lived and it was like, if I could have all that money back, I wouldn't even be working anymore. <laughs> that thing, it was so much fun. It was a lot of work. I mean, you have maintenance, you have cost, you have docking, you have just, there's so much. It's almost like owning a mini house, right? Well, and we're you, talking you, about like a 30 foot boat, like a cruiser here. Not, we're not talking about a yacht. So it's like- You, you, you knew me in the, mid, in the mid 2000s and you know what my vice was because I liked traveling and partying. And it was nothing to me to show up on a Friday night in New York City and say, oh, what's table service tonight? Oh, five grand to get in the door? No problem. Here's my credit card. Oh, we did that too. We did that together a lot, actually, you and I. We did that together a lot. And and, and I- we took over I, cities. I mean, let's be real. It, we did. And, you know, I mean, I look back and say, we rented Cowboy Stadium for our own private Super Bowl party. Yes, I mean, we did what, do that. I mean, this, we call these the puff daddy years in my yes, house, yes, right? That was, uh, that was my, that was my puff daddy. No, uh, but listen, I look back at it and I go, I'm glad I got a lot of that out of my system because now I have friends in their fifties that like did nothing because they made money so yeah. late and they're like itching. I'm like, they're like, I'm, they're like, I'm like, I, I like have no interest in anything you're telling me because I did all this in my thirties. What, what are we ta talking about? hundred percent. Wait, right? we got that so all glad, out of our man. system. I, I was talking so to glad. somebody the other day and I, I, they, they were. They brought something up about Hugh Hefner, and I said, "Well, the first time I was at the Playboy <laughs> Mansion, and they and they said they said who starts Not a the conversation first 
with the first time I was at the Playboy match. I said, listen, man, I did all that. I've done it. The fact everything. that you opened the sentence up with the first time is classic. Did you do it on purpose or by accident? Um, I did it by you, accident the first time. You did now it on I purpose just to be a completely arrogant, right? Like, tell me total, you did it on Total dick move. By the way, me and Aaron, at both occasions, were at the Playboy Mansion together. And by the way, it's not what you think. It's, the, it's not the Hollywood. It's well, never it's, what you think, right? It's, it's sort of what it's you It's very museum-ish. It's kind of what you think, actually. But was, it's more... Oh. It's, it's a controlled environment that isn't like some big orgy like they make it out to be on TV. It's it's it was it's really a, a historical place. I mean, when we went, it was the tour. It was very there were elements that were almost like a museum. Do you remember certain things? Yeah, were, but I also remember it being a hell of a party. <laughs> but there were some elements of 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 the mansion as well, and you know the the pool and all that. And we did have a good time. Those were, but again, those were those were all like pre kids days for us. You might have been the only one who had like maybe a baby at home, and you were starting to wind down at that point. The kids do the kids do wonders for winding that 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 side of life down, don't they? they do. My son, they do. like when my son was born in 2010, I was like, it was like kind of my wild years. It was like the antidote I needed to just completely calm down. And like enough with the partying and the big Miami and New York and Vegas scenes. It was like, boop, I'm done. Just like that. When my son was born, just like that. You, I know, yeah. it's the same way, right? I remember that shift for you, and I was yeah, you I do. was shocked. I you was do. shocked. I, I it's kind of like oh, seeing man. Brady retire, wasn't it? I said, this guy, this guy is not cut out. <laughs> I didn't come back hair. though. A month later. <laughs> <laughs> I remember saying this guy is a good guy, but he's not cut out to be a parent. He is way too wild on, on yes. the weekend scene. People and then you had, your kid. People don't you had your kid and you were like, I'm out. People Done. don't believe that side of me. They, they, they think that that was because I, yeah, I try to maintain a you know good, clean image and, and I'm not faking it. I really, that's something that's a value to me is, is dressing well and speaking well and, you know, taking good care of the family and putting all that first. But there was a window of time, like all of us, eight, nine, ten year window where it was like, wow. Um, did it all. Did it all. Yeah. Yeah. Did it all. But anyways, we digress. Um, How'd we get on that topic? Who cares? It's our show. And and people are, <laughs> people are probably like, man, these guys are way more interesting than I thought. You, you don't know. Well, the listen, the, at the introduction, they did say we're two. I think they did say something like we're two incredibly entertaining fellas or men. So, And I didn't say it. She said it. So, yeah, she said it. And we oh, could sp- sit here for the next five hours and talk through all of those years and people's minds would be blown. But I don't well, listen. Think here's the thing, yeah. though, to loop it back to the show. The reason we were able to do all those big, fun things and travel in the boats and all that was because we really understood understood what we're talking about here today, which was, do you have a sales and marketing focused business? Is is sales and marketing at the heart and soul of the business? If it is, you start to create great leverage and you start to create great money. If, if everything is about the product and the operations and the branding and like sales and marketing is an oh, by the way, like it is for many businesses, by the way, yeah. you're, you're, you're constantly, you're, you're in that constant struggle of like too much month at the end of the money. Right. And again, I can look at that business with 99.9% accuracy and go, you just don't have enough emphasis on lead generation and selling. Yep. It's, it's, it's very formulaic to, to, to look at this in, in business. And, you know, hopefully this show is a way to bring you sometimes back to that foundational point I just made because we can all easily get away from it. Right. It's not the most fun. And sometimes it's the most awkward and the toughest. So we, human nature says, I would want to do less of that. Right, because marketing and selling is uncomfortable. Getting out there, doing videos, branding, running ads, working with teams. You know, I just had an interview this morning with a salesperson, had an interview last week with a salesperson, manage a sales team twice a week. You do as well. Like that stuff to me, I like it, but it's the hardest part of the business. 
because you're managing yep. some big personalities. And in some cases, you're managing big egos. And in some cases, you're creating an entire sales process for people who are relying on you for that to be the sales process that feeds their kids. There's huge yep. responsibility, huge yep. responsibility. You know, in our case, we happen to be so good at what we do that we're able to drive unlimited leads and sales to our sales team where they don't have to prospect. So our sales guys, and we, they were, we were talking about this this morning with this new person, Aaron, we were interviewing. They were like the, the, pro, the person we were interviewing together, me and Nathan, by the way. Um, she's like, so wait a minute, I wouldn't have to cold call or go on LinkedIn and prospect or do, yeah, this is unheard of, Aaron. Like you and I drive a boatload of sales and leads into our company so that when a salesperson is in, in the role, they're speaking to customers, not leads who are going, who are you? What did I sign up for online? What, what are you? Where are you from? Like that is like the most annoying thing in sales is when you get a prospect on the phone. By the way, this is a result of shitty marketing, it, or, have, or non-existent or, or non-marketing because you're cold calling and they have absolutely no idea who you are. So this girl happened to be in in um, in, in insurance sales, and that industry is notorious for buying leads, which yep. by the way get sold to like six different people because yep, somebody went online and like qualified to get a free iPad. And oh, if you get the, if you qualify to get a free iPad, you have to agree to get like a term insurance quote. It's like the worst lead you can ever imagine. A lot of times Absolutely. they don't know what's going on because they don't, they fail to look at what is the lead generation process that I'm buying. They don't even look at that, which is crazy, right? It's actually called co-reg marketing. Yeah, there's it, that too. It can be part of your campaigns, but it's a very low quality lead that requires a lot of volume. But we were talking about like the first 10 minutes of her call, she's explaining who the heck she is, what they signed up for, why we're here. It's like, you're start, I, I jokingly say you're starting from less than zero. Your goal yep. as a salesperson is to be starting from zero minimum, but hopefully you're starting from like a little above zero because your marketing is so good. But if it's really bad, you're at less than zero because you're going into a call, a complete stranger, an annoying pest, an unwelcome guest, whatever you want to call it. And it just makes selling so annoying. It's, it's really why a lot of people get turned off to selling. Really important takeaway here and I wrote about this in my book, is when you engineer good marketing, selling actually becomes a lot more fun. You're actually oh, having yes. quality conversations. You're not pitching people on who the heck you are and why you're here and, and what this is about and is this a good time. And I don't know. It's just constant friction. And it's all a result of not having good marketing to precede you. True. All right, let's wrap it up. We're five after the top of the hour. What makes you think we're on a timeline? I got another hour of content here. Well, like, I'm let kidding, it rip. I'm kidding. We'll keep it kind of short today. We just wanted to talk big picture philosophy on the big Q, which is sales and marketing. You know, if you were expecting an answer on the show today, either or, both. there isn't one. It's actually both. And in a lot of cases in life, it's both. It's both. Either or can sometimes be dangerous. Both is a balanced approach, right? Both is a portfolio approach. And, uh, and again, great marketing precedes your sales process, right? A sales process without great marketing to proceed, it will always meet what we talk about on the show, the theme, resistance, friction. And uh, hopefully we can help you avoid that as much as we can each and every week. All past episodes are at salesvelocitytv.com. I'm Andrew, that's Aaron. And we will see you on the next episode of Sales Velocity TV and Radio. This one's a wrap. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Sales Velocity TV is powered by Pipeline Pro, the ultimate all-in-one sales pipeline management and marketing automation platform that makes all others obsolete. And we can prove it. Take a tour at gopipelinepro.com. See you on the next episode.